Well, last week, Mark shared with us some information about this book I kind of want to go over again. Is Paul is writing this book to this church in Rome around 56 or 57 AD. And Paul himself has been a missionary for about 20 years. So he's been teaching and establishing churches like in Galatia and Colossae and Ephesus and Corinth. But he hasn't established this church in Rome. But he's heard about the church in Rome and what's happening. And so he's writing to them from his experience of planting other churches and also probably because he's heard of some of the things that are happening and what's being said as we heard last week. And so Paul is writing to instruct this church. And he's writing his longest letter because he has never been there before. And so he's taken 16, as we've said, chapters and gone to great length to explain his gospel, as he says. You see in other books like Galatians and Colossae and Corinthians, it's like a couple of letters, but it's still smaller because he's visited there. They understand what he's taught, and he's really teaching them through this whole apologetic. Paul is offering them his apologetic, his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, again, we're going to go through 118 through 332. So, again, if you have your Bibles, open them up. And I want to refresh your memory to some verses that Mark ended with last week that he really didn't teach through, but he said Tony would do it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do that this morning. So going back into verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he pointed out two things in there. He pointed out that word faith and the righteousness of God. And he said, I would answer those questions this week, but I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to let Paul do that as we go through the text. And when we get to the end, I believe Paul answers those questions. And really, those two verses serve as that platform really for the rest of the book. So it's really good. He sort of joked around that we should memorize this book. I say memorize those two verses. Be great two verses for you to always remember, because it really does serve as the foundation for all of Paul's writings. So we're going to get to this word faith, and we're also going to get to this term righteousness of God and what that means. Paul gave us another word that Mark talked about last week, and that's the gospel. And the gospel literally means the good news, this good proclamation that God has made, and that it's a special revelation that is made. It's a spoken word. But this gospel is really from God's grace, his unmerited favor. He gives that to us out of the goodness of God, comes to us. And Paul says it's the power of salvation. It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation in all. But then Paul ends that section and abruptly makes a switch. And he introduces us really to this word that we talk about in the church. It's the law. And when we talk about the law and the gospel, we're not saying... The Old Testament is the law and the New Testament is the gospel because that's not true. The law is God's righteous pronouncements, his will, his perfect will. That's the law. And you see Jesus oftentimes preaching God's law. You see it on the Sermon on the Mount. You see it when he speaks to his disciples. You see it when he speaks to the Pharisees. So Jesus speaks law. And we see the law in the Old Testament, but we also see the gospel there. And we see the gospel in the New Testament. So when we talk about the law and the gospel, it's not dividing the testaments. It's God's will. His righteous will is the law. And the gospel is the good news. And you can sort of say, as we've said before, the the law is really sort of the bad news of the gospel. But we're going to get to that. And right away, Paul, he makes the switch. 
So when you see this word law, what do you think of? Anybody? Speeding ticket you got? Is that what you said? No. You think of like a courtroom or maybe lawyers and, and, and things like that, the law, that's where it's adjudicated, right? And you'll see this legal language throughout Paul's uh, testimony here. And you see this really through these verses. When you think of this courtroom, you think of law, that's really kind of what Paul is doing. Paul's really telling us of the largest lawsuit ever filed in the history of man. It's God filing this lawsuit against all of humanity. And Paul's saying he's righteous in doing so. And he's telling us that if you look close enough, you'll find your name written there as one of the defendants. And he's adjudicating this. And Paul is really kind of like a court stenographer. He's a court reporter. And he's telling us what's going on in this lawsuit. And he begins by saying in uh, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, his will, his law, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. He's saying the nature of God, his will, his divine nature, his goodness, has been visible for everyone to see. And you see it in the things that have been made. You see it in his creation. And he says it's, in, it's visible to all, but not all see it because why? They suppress it. They don't want to see it. They push it down. That word there, suppress, doesn't mean just to like hold it in my hand. It means no, to like push it down. I don't want it in my life. And he says that's what men do. God has given, he's revealed his law. He's revealed his righteous anger that we know this but we try to suppress it because our consciences, they sort of like convict us. And we don't like feeling that way. And so to defend ourselves, people push down the truth. And we suppress it. But he says his invisible qualities are visible to everyone. And you see this. And you see it happen to men and women throughout history. In the largest scale in the universe, when scientists study the universe and the heavens, and they see this great design... And they see how intricately it was designed and how precisely it was designed. And they recognize there is no way this could be by accident. Time plus matter plus chance does not address the design that we see. And we also see it in the smallest of things, like within the human genome. There was a scientist, his name was Francis Collins, and he was an atheist for most of his life. And he studied the human genome to map the human genome, all the chromosomes, to see everything. And in doing so, what do you think he discovered? A designer. It's like, if this is no way this could happen by chance. The math just doesn't get there. And he became a believer because he was seeking out the truth. And we're told that in the Old Testament. It's like, when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. When people seek after God, God doesn't make himself invisible. He doesn't, make himself, he doesn't hide himself. He avails himself in all of creation. All we need to do is seek after him. But what we do oftentimes is we suppress that truth because of what it does in our hearts. It sort of convicts us and makes us feel guilty. And he says, for although they knew God, although they saw God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Although they knew God, they decided to worship something else, something that would not make them feel bad about what they were doing. You know, we live in a time that can be defined as post-truth. You know, that was the word of the year, 2016. I don't think it's a new idea. I just think it's a new word. And, you know, it was this postmodernism thought that predated that that said there's no such thing as absolute truth. But when you really look at that argument, it defeats itself. So now there's this new term of post-truth where we identify that we believe there is absolutely absolute truth in the world. It just doesn't dictate in my life. Because my emotions and my desires trumpet. What makes me happy, what gives me the most joy, that is what trumps everything else. Yeah, I know smoking's bad for me, but it gives me a lot of joy. And so we ignore the facts. We suppress the truth because our emotions and our feelings dictate in my life. And that's exactly what Paul's describing here, is that we'll, we'll become fools because we want what we want. And then he goes on into chapter 2. And, oh, I'm sorry, before he gets there, he, he does say a couple of things that I think are extremely important. He says, but because of this, he says, therefore, because of all this behavior, he goes on to list this litany of sins. He says, God gave them up to their lust of their heart. He turned them over to what they wanted. He says, if this is what you want, then this is what you shall have. And you think, wow, that's kind of harsh. Why wouldn't he stop us? You ever tried to stop somebody who really wanted to do something and you could give them all the good reasons in the world and all the truth in the world and they just don't hear you? You have to let them go and fall on their own. You could tell your children not to do this. Yeah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Later they find out. And as parents, we should be gracious and not say, I told you so. But we know in our hearts we told them so. And God's desire here is that he would allow sin to punish sin. He would allow our sin, our disobedience to punish ourselves so that we would finally get to a point, we would reach rock bottom, where we would understand that the things we're chasing after provide no joy, provide no happiness. And we have to, at times, experience that and understand that for ourselves. We can't be taught, we have to learn it. And he's saying, okay, I pray you learn this lesson before it's too late. And so he says he gave them up to their dishonorable passions. So God does a very gracious thing. He lets sin punish sin in ourselves. And the whole time in this case, there's this other group over here. There's this group over here that says, well, I know God's law. I know God's law, and I recognize that sin and all around me. And I agree with God. Wrong. Well, he says, now Paul turns to that person, and he says to them, in chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says to the moralist, to the one who finds their righteousness in their knowledge, in their understanding of God's will, not the one who practices it, but the one who pronounces it, who understands it, 
and sees their own moralistic view as righteous. And when we judge, we put others down and lift ourselves up so that we are more acceptable. He's saying, wait a minute, before you cast a stone and, and point the finger at this person, you need to look in the mirror. You need to look at yourself. You need to study God's word and see it through a mirror, not through a looking glass. Because you need to be careful. Only one judges righteously, and that is God himself. And when you put yourself in place of God and you try to do what you're not equipped to do, you just need to be careful and understand the harm that you can do, that you can inflict. He says in, in verse 4, Or you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He says, are you going to test God's patience and forbearance with yourself by using the law to bring about repentance in someone else? Are you going to preach the law hoping that they repent and turn from their sin? He's like, that doesn't happen. Because it's God's loving kindness. It's his grace. It's the power of the gospel that is for salvation. It is the gospel that causes a man, a woman, to repent. You'll get to the explanation of what the law is about, but right here he says, it's God's loving kindness that leads man to repentance. If you're trying to get somebody to repent, the law is useless in that regard. And when you, oh man, judge someone for the purpose of getting them to join you in this endeavor, then you're almost worse than the person I mentioned before. You too are included in God's judgment. And then he sort of emphasizes and he changes the direction and sort of changes the timetable. He says, because a day will come when God will judge everyone. So in verses 6 through 16, we see him entering in this idea of teaching us about that judgment day and God's patient and forbearance that he's putting off his wrath till that day. And he says, for all have sinned and are without the law. Or so for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All sin, all will be judged, all will perish because of the law. The law convicts us. The law finds us guilty. The law does not save us. And because we are sinners, because the law convicts everyone, it condemns everyone. And there will come a day when Jesus will return and he will judge everyone by their works, by their lives. Everyone. No one will escape that day. And he finishes, he says, For when Gentiles do what, the, what, what do not have, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they don't have God's word, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, that end day, According to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It is God and God alone that will judge the hearts of men. 
and what it is they believe, where they believe their righteousness exists. And the one who doesn't have the law testifies when they obey the law. You see that the work of the law is written on their hearts, all men's hearts. God's wrath, his righteousness, his will is evident to all. And when we sin, when we transgress that law, our hearts are stirred. What you find is that over time, as we continue in our disobedience, as the writer of Hebrews says, we can grow calloused. Our hearts can grow calloused. And this twinge that we felt maybe the first time we indulged in that has since long faded because the callous around our hearts has grown thick. And we no longer feel it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And that's what God is saying. Just because you don't feel it anymore doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's there. You just can't feel it anymore. God is still righteous in his judgment. He goes on to say that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, God will judge the entire world. And then he turns to another crowd who's been watching in this lawsuit. And he says to them in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, now hold on, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He turns to this Jewish crowd that's been watching and saying, we've got God's law. And he's saying now to the Jewish moralist, to the one who believes they're righteous because they're God's people who've been given the law, you are in no better shape than the one who doesn't have the law. You are in no better shape. In fact, you're almost in worse shape because you cause harm to others by professing that you are righteous because you have God's law. You know what's right. So again, he's preaching against and condemning the moralist in this case. And he says to them that you're only here, I'm sorry, he says to them that you think you know what's excellent, but you have the word. And today we would say, who's, who's, the, who's the body of believers? Who's the people that have God's word? It's the church. We've been entrusted with God's word. So we can look at this chapter, this verse right here, these verses, and say, God is speaking to us, the church, and he has some harsh words for us. He says that when you preach against people and you use God's word as a stick and a club and you yourself do exactly what you say don't do, believers judge God because of you. People, I'm sorry, people that do not know God judge God because of you. They look at you and what do you hear in our culture today? What do people say against Christianity? Well, if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't want anything to do with that God. I don't want anything to do with that. Because that makes no sense at all. And in doing so, who are they judging? God. I don't want anything to do with God. And that's exactly what Paul says. Among the non-believers, among the Gentiles, God's name is blasphemed 
among the keepers of the law, the keepers of God's word, who say, don't do this, but yet do that themselves. So Paul has some harsh words and some warnings for the church and for the Jewish people at this time because of the damage that we can cause others. It doesn't just harm ourselves. It harms others. It causes them to judge God. He says, but no one is a Jew who merely outwardly obeys the law, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. He is to be praised from man, from, not from man, but from God. It is God that produces that in the heart of man. And it's something that's an inward circumcision that God does in the heart of those who believe. And God judges the heart, not the outward actions. And he tells us and he warns us, be very careful. Be very careful. And so then the, the question is that follows in, verse three, in chapter 3 is this. Well, then what advantage is there to be a Jew? What advantage is there to be a Christian? What advantage is that of those who have God's word? What is their advantage? Or what is the value of circumcision? What's the value of baptism? What's the value? Much in every way, he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Paul's sort of taking the opposition, the defense. He says, but what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's how to think about what he's saying. My son is speeding and wrecks our car, and he comes home, and we're angry. And he says, I don't really think you need to be angry at me. He says, think about it like this. I know I was speeding, and I wrecked the car. But think about it. My younger sister will see this and understand the good that can come out of this. <laughs> and she will know what not to do. So you're welcome. That's the argument that's being made. And they're saying, well, because we've done bad, that will bring glory to God. So why are you accusing us? And he says, in verse 4 in chapter 3, he says, By no means let God be true, though everyone a liar. God is true. His ways are true. His ways are just. His laws are perfect. And he goes on to say that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is quoting there from the Old Testament. He says that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is justified by his words and will prevail when he is judged because he is the only one righteous. Can you think of a time where the world tried to judge God? How about on a hill on Calvary about 2,000 years ago where they judged God by his own words and believed him to be a liar and a drunkard? They believed him to be from Satan. But what happened? He was justified by his words, claiming to be God. Father raised him from the dead, and he prevailed after he was judged by the world, proving himself to be the one true God as he is raised from the dead. 
in power. God is revealed through his word and through actions to being the one true judge, righteous judge of the world. And that's when the, Paul takes the other defense and he says in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? Like again, by no means. By no means. We don't do evil so that good may come. We don't follow after our hearts knowing that God's grace will abound. We don't continue in our sin knowing that we've already been forgiven of that sin. That's what Paul's saying. It's not to reveal the glory of God. It only reveals our condition and how powerless we are under sin. And so their condemnation, the people in this lawsuit, the world, their condemnation is just, Paul says. It is just that God condemns the world for our actions, for our superior morality. And he goes on to make this sort of like argument, this really strong argument. In case you're listening, he's saying, and you think you've been excluded, let me make it crystal clear to every single one of you. Are Jews better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of asps is under their lips. Their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty conclusive, right? He doesn't leave any wiggle room. And to make it even more, like, a more important point, he does this thing I believe you see in the text where he uses this number system. In, in the ancient Hebrews world, there's, numbers mean a lot. And so the number seven in the Hebrew culture is this number of completeness. And if you look at Paul's phrases here, you can see that pattern. He says, no one is righteous, not one, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. Seven times Paul says, no one. And then he goes on. He says, not only them, but their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths, their feet, their paths, their eyes. Not only them, but everything about them. Again, seven, to say, if you missed it, completely sinful. Not one is righteous by their works, by what they do. No one dare stand in the court of God and declare themselves innocent or righteous, because that's just not the case. But then Paul doesn't leave it there, because God doesn't leave it there. He goes on to say, but, in verse 21 of chapter 3, and by the way, that's one of the biggest conjunctions in all of Scripture. There's a bigger one yet to come in, in chapter 8, but, you know, it's like a conjunction, you know, like, remember Schoolhouse Rock? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Okay, I digress, okay. 
He says, but now the righteousness of God, there's that word that we talked about at the beginning, has been manifest apart from the law. Not through the law, but apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they speak of God's, the righteousness of God, but the law does not bring the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the law. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in him, there is no righteousness of God. For anyone, all stand condemned. And he says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. They are made right with God because of what God has done, because of his unmerited favor upon man as a gift. Though the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a offering, as atonement for God's for, the, for sin by the blood of Christ, by his blood, <coughs> to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. God is saying by faith you receive the righteousness of God. And that faith that you receive is a gift. When power of the gospel intersects the human heart, the gospel has the power to produce faith in the heart of the hearer. And it's the gospel, it's the power of God that does that, not you perceiving it. But when your heart, your soul comes into contact with the power of the gospel, the good news that there is a way out of this predicament, there is a way out of your punishment, when your heart hears that, it has the power to produce faith in your heart. A gift from God for your faith. Salvation is from faith, for faith. That faith that will sustain you the rest of your life. That faith that on that final day when Jesus comes, you will escape punishment. And because of that faith, as you stand before the judgment seat, you don't stand judged by your works, you stand judged by the righteousness of Christ. You stand before God today and then in the righteousness of God because he has given you the righteousness of Christ. He no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees the ugliness. There is no wrath in love. We not need be afraid of the wrath of God, not because we see it, not because we're good people, but because God has given us faith. And it's nothing that we've done. He's given that to us because that's what he's, that's what he's revealed, is his love for his creation. And so as we stand in his court, the only way to escape his court, the only way to escape judgment is by pleading guilty. And to say, yeah, this describes me. And if it were not for the love of God, for his grace and mercy, I would stand condemned. But because of his grace and mercy, I am free. 
I've been set free from his punishment and from his wrath because of what Jesus has done. See, Paul's making this case to, to this church today and to the world and saying, God is righteous in his judgment of the world. There is this problem of sin, but God has made a way to be made right with him by giving you his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop rejecting the gift. Stop throwing your hand, throwing their hand off. Paul is preaching this law to us today and to the world in a hope that he can bust through some of that callousness that's built up on our hearts. So that when the gospel is preached, there's fertile soil, there's softness that faith can grab a hold of. A man that's just not rejecting God's promise and his, his judgment on us. So Paul can, concludes this section by saying, and what becomes of our boasting, right? What do we have left to boast about? The righteousness of Christ. That's what we have to boast about. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do we overthrow the law? Is the law useless? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We believe God righteous in his judgment. We believe his law is perfect. And now a standing one is freed from the judgment of the law. We're no longer on the condemnation of the law. We are free to be guided by the law, to live this life here on this planet now, between now and then, living in God's will, experiencing the abundant life. The law now no longer becomes our accuser, it becomes our guide. And we follow it because we understand the love of God through his mercy on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. That's the gospel that Paul talks about in chapter 1. That's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Every single person. There is no one, no one living that cannot be saved. And so he gives us the task of sharing that good news with the world. And sometimes it causes us to share the bad news because we have to. But we need to do so in relationship where we're not judgmental. Where we can carefully apply the law so that we can share that good news. So that when it's heard, it's not rejected. That the heart is wrenched. And man is moved to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We stand with Paul, and we don't condemn the world. We, as Paul, want to save the world by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone. And so we study this word as he'll continue in the following weeks to share with us what this life looks like and what God is truly about and how we participate in that and how we can be assured of that proclamation that we have been set free, free indeed. I pray that you know that more than ever. For Jesus' sake, amen.